0: Mindfulness mode 360.
1: I can get you married in the Vatican easier than I can get a teenager to get off his ass.
0: Hey, Mindful Tribe, you have arrived. It's the Mindfulness Mode Podcast. And if you're brand new, welcome. This is Bruce. This is Bruce Langford, your Mindfulness Mode host, your Mindfulness Mode life coach. And it's great to have you here with me. And I'm sure you're going to love the show today with my special guest. But first, I want to tell you about the conference I'm going to be speaking at just coming up in a few days, but you still have time to sign up. It's in Atlanta, Georgia. It's starting on the 28th of September, going through till October 1st. It's called the Global Zen Consciousness Conference. And the list of speakers will just blow your mind. It's a wonderful conference. You can read all about it at zenconference.org. I have been so excited leading up to this conference. So if you get a chance to look at the website and consider coming, please come up and say hi. We'll have a coffee, we'll talk, we'll hang out. It'll be a lot of fun. It'll be a terrific conference and you can get 20% off because you listen to Mindfulness Mode. All you have to do is enter the word mindfulness when you go to sign up for the conference on the website. So consider it. It's going to be uh, wonderful with Shi Deru is the person who Uh, put this conference together he's a Kung Fu expert and an amazing man who's accomplished so much in his life but so many other great speakers too so check it out and another thing are you having trouble sleeping how are you doing with your sleep patterns Because recently I recorded a meditation that will help you fall asleep into a deep, natural sleep. It's a guided meditation that you can just listen to and, you know, drift off to sleep with a calm, gentle voice. That would be mine. And rest comfortably without effort. So you can download that at MindfulnessMode.com sleep. It's all yours for being a listener here at Mindfulness Mode. And before we spend any more time chatting, I am just so excited to introduce you to Steve Sims. He's right here, right now. Sit back and enjoy today's show. Hey, mindful tribe! This is an awesome day because we have with us the real Wizard of Oz, and I'm not kidding around. This is the man that can make it all happen, whatever you can dream, whatever you can, uh, whatever you can imagine. I've got Steve Sims with me today. Hey, Steve, are you in mindfulness mode today? Oh, hell yeah! <laughs> You just look so relaxed and so calm. And Steve, let me share with Mindful Tribe a little bit about you before we get into this conversation. Steve Sims, like I said, is the man that makes things happen. And I mean just about anything you can imagine, like appearing on stage with your favorite rock band, getting married at the Vatican, having lunch with Richard Branson. Steve works with celebrities, professional athletes, and other dreamers who want to live life to the fullest and make the unimaginable real steve does all this but at the same time is grounded he believes in meditation and uses his own style of meditation to get it done so steve well on that note what does mindfulness mean to you um mindfulness to me means state of mind
1: um Someone actually said to me a little while ago, Becky, she actually said to me that um, success was a mind game. And I kind of really like that. It all starts up here. Um, so mindfulness is being in the right position to accept the right opportunity.
0: Right. And you've uh, certainly been in a lot of positions over the years. You started as a bricklayer when you were a young adult. Isn't that the, the profession your whole family was involved in? Including my mum, yeah. <laughs> including your mom. So I guess you have to be, what is it, pretty mindful to be a bricklayer? Or is it more like you get into a state of mindlessness?
1: Uh, you get into a state of repetition. Um, yeah. And it's. Uh, I was a, a bricklayer, so it was a case of one brick after the other in a straight line, then go to the next wall. Um, I wouldn't have said that it was too... Overly complicated. It's certainly a skill set, but it is monotonous, it's laborious, it's hard working, uh, it's cuts, grazes, getting and it's in England, so you're getting wet, you're getting cold, you're getting you know crapped on on a daily basis. Um, so it's not a comfortable environment, but it's one where you have to keep going over the same thing, the same thing. And for some strange reason, as a young Irish lad living outside of London. I just knew, I knew very little in my life, but I knew that this wasn't gonna be me for the rest of my life.
0: Well, and you described that in your book, Blue Fishing, The Art of Making Things Happen. And I can highly recommend this book. It's an easy read, but on every page is quotable stuff. It's really important ways to look at life. And you were looking at life in a in some different ways when you were doing that bricklaying, and then you got the hell out of there. Where did you go? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so... You've heard of the uh, jumping out of the frying pan into the fire? Yes. Um, yeah, that's my t-shirt. Um, I, wanted, I knew I couldn't be a bricklayer for the rest of my life, so I wanted to get as far away from it as possible. In the 80s, when there was the stockbroker industry, um, I actually applied for a, a transition uh, job, which meant that there was loads of stockbrokers, I think it was about 100, being transferred to Hong Kong. Because of that amount of people, I managed to slip through the net and they actually transferred me a bricklayer. I may have exaggerated my resume slightly, um, but they transferred me and gave me a job in Hong Kong as a bricklayer. I landed on the Saturday. I got drunk with them Saturday and Sunday. I went to orientation on the Monday and I was fired on the Tuesday. So I went as polar opposite as I possibly could from bricklaying.
0: And then what did you do? You had no job. You had no money. You were stuck in Hong Kong.
1: But I'd made a step. And that was the thing. I always believed that being stationary was the worst thing that could happen. Now I was away from bricklaying. Now I was away from construction. Um, They say never burn your bridges. I had detonated them and, and dosed them with nuclear radioactive material. I could never go back. Um... And funny enough, I ended doing what God built me for. I ended up working on the door of nightclubs um, and telling people they could come in, they couldn't come in and kicking out those that got rowdy. And then I knew that I was in a different platform and I knew, okay, I'm on a door now and I'm a bouncer. I don't want to be doing this anymore. So I knew more about what I didn't want to do rather than what I wanted to do. Um, And that got me questioning. I've always been a questioner. I've always asked why. And that got me into the, well, okay, I don't want to do this. What do I want to do? And I came up with the incredible calculation. If I knew a bunch of rich people, I could get a job. Now, I knew this because poor people don't employ you. Rich people do. So I stuck to the basics, and I still stick to the basics. And so I started utilizing my position in the lifestyle, you know, social quite simply, seedy world of nightclubs in in Hong Kong as a way of starting to get to know people and getting to know expatriates on where the best bar was, where the best club was, where the access to the best uh, fashion week was. And all of a sudden, my event level got higher and higher, but it was only being done to give me a reason to circulate with affluent people.
0: I see. And then you ended up circulating with a lot of affluent people. And, uh, one of them is Elton John. You've done work with him. <laughs> and how did you come, how did you come to meet Elton?
1: So, um, and I met the people around Elton more than Elton, the the, the phenomenal Dave Furnish and Scott Campbell, uh, the his AIDS foundation. Um, bluefish is a, it became a high end concierge firm and we can go into how that came up later, but we had done a lot of for-profit events. Um, where we had got involved in these major events, you know, Monaco Grand Prix, Hollywood award shows. But I always liked Elton's event because he actually throws the best Oscar after party every year. Yes, And it's a four charity event. So not only is it one of the best parties that you would still go to, even if it was a profit event, but Mm -hmm. because you're actually going in there and you're actually putting the money into a charitable event and you're actually fighting the lifestyle disease, um, We actually wanted to back that. And we're in it now for, I think, our third or fourth year. So we've been working with those guys for a while now. I don't see it stopping. I get on with them. They put up with me. So everything's cool.
0: (laughs) Well, it is cool. And I know you also know uh, Jason Gaynard, who uh, I'm having him on my show. And he's a great guy. I mean, down to earth, as you know, he just lives down the road from me, basically, here in Ontario, Canada. Anyway, tell me about Jason and your experience with him.
1: So Jason's a secret warhead. He comes across as a nice guy. He's not. I want to start that rumor. Um, he comes across as just a, a nice, warming, um, un character that lowers your guard, and then he just drops a nugget of wisdom that you just go, oh, my God, how can you do that? He's one of the sharpest, nicest men. And with his, with his beautiful wife, Candice, and that, that family, they uh, run mastermind talks. And um, they've been able to build a community of, quite simply, some of the best of the best of the best. Not people that just go to an event because they can pay. He actually nurtures some of the most phenomenal minds. And I'll tell you, there's some incredible people that go to his events. But all of them pay, pay respect to the, uh, the, the master captain that's steering that ship. And I can't say enough good things about Jason Gaynard.
0: Well, Jason meditates, and so do you. And we're talking about mindfulness here. I know your meditation sometimes involves motorcycles. Tell us about your form of meditation.
1: So um, I, for many, many years, hated meditation, okay, without realizing that I was actually doing it. Um, as entrepreneurs, the worst thing that we can do is come to a full stop because we want to get away from work. And the first thing we do is we go and buy a two week holiday on a beach. we lay on the beach. We're laid there like that. First thing that happens is like, crap, did I send that email? Did I do that? And your, your little monkey brain starts going like crazy. So the whole idea of meditation for me was that beach where you just sat there and you did nothing. I find that meditation for me is to take me out of where I am now and Mm -hmm. place me in another place where I stop thinking about these things. Meditation is not stop thinking. It's just not thinking about where you are now. And I learned to do my form of meditation through kickboxing. i race motorcycles. And by concentrating on these things, I allow all the other things that used to bother me just to sit on the sideline and something miraculous happens, when you can escape that and you're in another zone, another arena for a while, the second you stop doing that and you enter back into your work, your private, your family life, the funny thing that I've noticed is the priorities then line up. And before that, that all been coming at you like this, but they all kind of get in line as to what you've got to achieve, and you find yourself recharged just like you would with a phone better capable to handle those things.
0: And what's your uh, favorite motorcycle to get recharged on?
1: Oh, hell I have, uh, I have a bunch in the back here, as you can probably see by now. Yes. Yes. Um, I like the old ones to send me back in time. I like the fast ones to just scare the uh, bejeebas out of me. Um, So the fact that I have a lot is like saying, what's your favorite meal? Do you want that every day for the rest of your life? I'm glad I've got different tastes, different styles different speeds, different corners. So each one represents a different experience to me. So really depends on the day.
0: Right, right. Well, uh, one of my listeners, Helen, she wanted me to ask you what we as parents can do with teens, you know, teens that seem like they've lost their passion, they're sitting on the couch, all they can do is play video games. How do we get them charged up to move forward?
1: Oh, God. Why you had to bring that one up? Um, (laughs) Well, the easy answer is nothing. Um, And I I hate to even say that, but we all have teenagers. And I can get you married in the Vatican easier than I can get a teenager to get off his ass. (laughs) One of the weirdest things I discovered was to uh, incentivize and excite. Okay? The, you're up against it for a start because no one wants to listen to their parents. As teenagers, they're pre-programmed that you've lost track. You don't know what's going on. They will listen to your next door neighbor or some you know, fruit bat off of YouTube before they listen to your wisdom. So what you've got to do is position it that someone can actually it's – like, it's, it's literally like CIA. You've got to infiltrate their mindset with someone that can give them an idea You know, there's great millennial motivators out there. You know, people like um, Caleb Maddox, uh, Greg Reed's an older but phenomenal uh, millennial speaker. Jason Gaynard, um, uh, Brian uh, Schroen, uh, Jim Shields. Try and get your youngsters to go, oh, and I've done this. Say to them, I saw this video and it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. Can you explain it to me? And you drop that nugget in there. You know, and then they go, yeah, I saw that. What he's trying to get at is it. I'm like, but why would you do that? And you're acting dumb and you're playing the game, but you've got to get the teenager get to get to their own decision because we all know the second they've hit 16, 17, and 18, they know everything 10 times more than you in any case. So you've yes. got to allow them to come up with the decision that you want them to make.
0: Right. And that sounds like some of the techniques maybe you use for people that are not teenagers too. Do you, you dig in there, you figure out what their passion is, and you ask question after question after question. How do you stay in that mode of just keeping on, keeping on, keeping on?
1: Um, It's my drug of choice. Uh, <laughs> to get to someone's you know, I like, it's, it's very silly, but I, I class myself as like Indiana Jones without the hat and the good looks or the whip. Um, and I like digging for gold. And you meet people, and here's here's something stupid. Here's something that we, we I, I've noticed is nobody tells you what they want. I can literally ask you, what's your religion? What's your social security number? When was the last time you had sex? what's How much money's in your bank account? How much debt you're in? I can ask you all those questions and I can see the look on your face. Now, people don't want to answer those questions. Okay. Because they're intrusive. Okay. Yes. Yes. But you know that all numbers or facts and the numbers will go up and down up it, you know, what you've got in your bank account today, maybe less this afternoon or more in the morning, it's going to check, but it's a fact, but you don't want to reveal that number to me. But if I ask you, What is your deepest passion? What would wake you up at two o'clock in the morning that you can't believe you did? Now that's vulnerability because you're really exposing what makes you tick, what really excites you. And some of the weirdest two other people requests that I've had, I've been in front of people where they wanted to meet someone or they wanted to do something. And it's been of no interest to me, but the whole fact that that passion is there and that's so excited about doing it, I want them to wake up at two o'clock in the morning going, not only did I do that, but this weird Steve Sims was the guy that made it happen. And so I love, can I dig it in? So they go to me and they say, oh, uh, I would like to do something with so-and-so. And you can say to them, is that going to wake you up at night? Is that really all you want to do? And you challenge them. Right. Oh, you know. And the other daft thing is, if you ask someone, what do they want to do? You know, what do you want to do that's amazing? You know, they may say, I want to go to a I want to walk the red carpet at an award show, or I want to play drums with Guns N' Roses, or I want to have dinner with Richard Branson. But you know, here's the daft thing nanoseconds after them telling you what they want, they'll spend the next 10 minutes without you saying anything telling you why it can't be done. And they will <laughs> say to you, I want to have dinner with Elon Musk but I can't, I'm not rich enough, I'm not connected, I don't know where to start. They do that. Rather than spending that amount of energy to come up with the one one reason why they should, they'll spend the next 10 minutes telling you why they shouldn't. So for me, they tell me what they want, I switch off while I hear that walk, walk, walk for 10 minutes, and then I just go, okay, let's reset. Why should you do that? And I start digging. And it's an exploratory meeting, and it's beautiful to see them fidget and to go, well, uh, uh, why is that important to you? Why do you want to do that? Why would this wake you up? You sometimes find that the dream that they wanted was not the dream at all. I've had people come to me wanting to meet celebrities. And by the end of the phone call, they've ended up doing something completely different because that passion wasn't really in the celebrity. It's what the celebrity did or where he went or what he was involved in. You can be in a completely different Planet by the time you finish that exploratory meeting, and then when you do it, hell, you hit someone's hot bar and now sold that firstborn.
0: Well, you know uh, what I noticed when I read the book was not only do you make it happen, a lot of times you double it, you expand it, you make it into something way beyond, and you kind of alluded to that. So tell me about the person that you made into James Bond for a day. <laughs>
1: So we got this, uh, um, this beautiful wife contact us, tell us about how her husband every year had done something fantastical for her birthday and she wanted to re- uh, reciprocate for his birthday. So we were like, all right, you know, great. What is he like? What, he, what does he do? What are his taste buds? What's his music? You know, we tried to get into him. We try to understand him a bit and no one's going to know him better than his wife. One of the statements came up during the chat, uh, mentioned James Bond. And we were like, well, okay, we could send you to one of the hotels that was featured in the movie of James Bond, you know? Sure. That wouldn't really do it, would it? But why don't we, I don't know, get him kidnapped, you know, by one of the, uh, the the mistresses or the arch enemy criminals from James Bond. And, well, hang on a minute, if he's in, if he's James Bond, surely he's got to be driving around in an Aston Martin. Um, of course. And surely he should have his favorite drink, known by every bartender, by every... So this whole thing just kind of came. So we went from staying in a hotel as used in the the movie to actually turning it into a seven-day plot where he was 008 going back into uh, service and had to do unarmed combat training, driving fast cars, uh, fly a supersonic jet, all these different training protocols to make sure he was ready and back up for active duty. And in between it, we made sure that every bar he went to, they went, ah, Mr. Bond. And they they would literally present him his drink. They knew his drink. Because let's be honest, James Bond's the worst secret agent in the world because every bartender knows what he drinks. Exactly. So like, we did all these kind of things. And it was just funny. We had this guy turn up in a casino with a stuffed white cat, just walking around like this, just looking at him. <laughs> just these weird stuff. But it was really funny. It was really good fun. And the good thing is, You say I double up. I don't think I actually double up on what people want. I think I just get to what they want. Uh, When they come to me, they dilute it. And I love it when someone says to me, I want to do this, but it's impossible. And I'm like, brilliant. Because if you think it's impossible, just imagine when I pull it off, how happy you're going to be. And as they always say, it's only impossible until someone's done it.
0: Well, it's so cool because... All of us who live everyday lives, it seems we're all doing that. We're all downplaying what we can accomplish. And it doesn't matter who we are. We could be doing greater, bigger things. We just have to believe it. That's all there is to it, right,
1: Steve? And just start doing something. Just that momentum. Like I jumped out of a building and went for a job in Hong Kong. Now, again, that's hard to do when you're 43 years old and you've got three kids. Um, But I'm a great believer in momentum. Um, If I want... If I want something I will go and have a look at it. I will go and test drive it. You know, I had a client, one of his goals was that he wanted to stay in this five star hotel. And I said, fine. Go and have a cup of coffee there. Go to the restaurant of that hotel, have a cup of coffee coffee in the restaurant and then leave. You now know what it's like to walk through the front door, you know what it smells like, feels like, sounds like. You've experienced some of the service. The final step is just to book a room. You've just achieved Probably sixty percent of the sensory perception of it by just buying a coffee for
0: five ninety nine. Exactly, Steve. What were you like when you were eight years old? Tell me a, a story about a day in your life.
1: Um, I think, and it's very sad. So bear with me for this converse, uh, For this statement, I felt until I was probably about nineteen years old, and then I left home. I felt that I was a very poor kid. Okay. Uh-huh. So we didn't go out to restaurants. We didn't have takeaways. You know, we didn't have any of these kind of things. I ate steak once a year on my parents' anniversary. So I grew up feeling that I was a poor kid. And as an Irish lad, I think as the Irish in people, I was always questioning things. And I remember my mum taking me to London once and walking through Bond Street, which is like the British version of uh, like Fifth Avenue. Um, and there was, uh, and I think it was Cartier uh, or Gucci, one of those stores, Gucci. It was Gucci. And this was in the 80s where there were doormen. Do you remember the time when they used to have doormen standing outside these big precocious shops? Do you remember that?
0: Well, sort of, except I wasn't in an area to be near those big precocious shops. <laughs> well, no, nor was I. My mum used to do <laughs> up, uh, window
1: shopping. Yeah, sure. And I was on the opposite side of the road holding my mum's hand. Yeah. And she stopped square in front, and I can see it vividly now in London. And she's staring at Gucci, and I know it was Gucci because it was a handbag in the window. She's looking across the road, across the people, across the cars, at this handbag and the two big meatheads on the door. And so I'm stood there getting bored like a typical kid, and I went, are we going in? And she grabbed my hand and looked at me, and she went, we can't go in there, son. That's for other people.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I just remember thinking, why? It's a handbag shop. And I, I didn't have the ability um, to fear, uh, respect, uh, be intimidated by these things. As far as I was concerned, that's a handbag. Surely they want someone to buy it. You know, sure. it didn't make sense to me. So I grow, I grew up very ignorant. Um, I class myself now at the age of fifty-one, and you know, with what I get up to, as a very educated individual. But I I greatly believe schooling had nothing to do with my education, Um, but I believe that those experiences were my education. And I grew up questioning why my mum couldn't do that. Well, maybe it's because we're poor. Why are we poor? I don't want to be poor. It wasn't until my late 20s when I suddenly realized how wealthy I was as a child. I was never hungry. I was always safe. I was always warm. I always got a card on my birthday. I always got a present at Christmas. I was wealthy. I just hadn't realized it. And I had attributed to my life graded on financial, on money. And it wasn't until I was in my late 20s and now starting to kind of earn pretty good money that I realized I was wealthier then than I was in my late 20s with cash. So I actually went back and went, okay, what made me wealthy there? And try to make sure that I followed those fundamentals so that I could become wealthy in my later years.
0: That is so interesting. And yeah, a lot of us don't realize what we got until we look back. Uh, you know, I've worked in bullying prevention for a long time, Steve, and I want to ask you if you have a story about bullying, whether you were bullied or whether you bullied others or a situation where mindfulness would have made a difference.
1: So I won't, I would openly say I wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed as a young lad. Um, and I noticed very, very early on that fear was the issue, okay? Um, if we don't have fear of something, then we, we achieve way, way more, but we're held back by how much we actually fear. And I remember as a kid being a very big lad, okay? Mm-hmm. I don't know if it was the Irish jeans or whatever, but I've always been a big, big boy. Um, and I remember at school, all the young lads wanting to earn their stripes would pick on the big lad, you know? Okay. So I got picked on a lot. So I got picked on way more than the smaller kids. So if you want to know about bullying, I, I believe for, for, for a long period, I was the one getting bullied. And I remember this lad coming up to me that was a bit bigger, not as big as me, but still big enough to cause me to be a bit concerned. And he came up to me in the school class and he was trying to earn his stripes around his mates. So he had two or three of his mates around him. And I remember this vividly. He walks up to me in the class and he's like, Me and you, school end. I'm gonna have you, you know. And it was a typical kind of like, you know, 13-year-old hard talk that sounds pathetic now. And in a split second, all I could think about was, Oh my god, after school, I'm gonna get beaten up. And then I thought, I don't want to spend the whole afternoon worried about getting beaten up. So I stood up and I punched him in the head. And I got suspended, okay. Yes. And, but I wasn't frightened, and then I came back to school, and it was funny. I came back to school, and I he didn't pick on me, but other people still did. Okay. And I remember, I remember this feeling of being bullied, and then I never used to respond. People used to push me around, and I'll be, I didn't want to fight. And then I remember seeing some other people being bullied. And I remember stepping in and the only fights I ever got in was when I saw other people being bullied. Uh I hate people being bullied. I hate people being intimidated. And the trouble is nowadays, and I don't want to get psychological, we bully and intimidate ourselves. We already have talked about how we dilute our own dreams. Yes. That's a bully on your shoulder. Get rid of that bastard. He's not worth being there. Um, but it was funny because when I was on the train and it was funny you brought this question up, by the way, no one's ever asked me that, so well done. Um, Thank you. When I was on a train going to a building site, this boy started talking to me. We were both young lads. I had no idea who he was. I'm dressed up to go on a building site with my tools and my packed lunch, okay? Yeah. He's got a sharp suit on and a, and a, a newspaper he looked like one of the guys out of Wall Street. And I was so envious that he was going to be in an office, dry, with, with girls and all this kind of stuff. And yeah. I'm going to be on a building site with a bunch of old paddies. Um, he started talking to me as though he knew me. And I'm like, hello. you know, Yeah, you're okay. He was a kid that I protected from getting beaten up at school. Oh. And he recognized me on the train. And he was the one that told me about the job. That i went and applied for that got me to hong kong to start this whole journey oh
0: what a great story and it's I not often, in your book
1: <laughs> yeah i often wondered and i've gone back on this i often wondered if i had looked away from that kid getting pushed around where would i be now so it's funny what happens well you don't realize it's monumental at the time you know put me where i am today
0: well, that is that is an amazing story. You talk about ugly, that we need to get ugly. Tell, tell my listeners what you're talking about, because I think this is so cool.
1: I, well, thank you. Don't build it up. I can't, work, I can't live up to that. Um, anyone that picks up a magazine now or watches TV, they see these women that are photoshopped and they're now seven foot five inches tall and they weigh about 80 pounds. Or you see a guy and he's muscular. The whole photoshopping industry, we've got it on smartphones and everything. To the point now, we can't believe our eyes. No. So when we see an advert or when we see a, a press clip or when we see a movie, we're just glazing over the fact that Godzilla just jumped out of the local Starbucks. It doesn't phase us anymore. We've been desensitized. But you know, when you see a video and it's a little bit choppy, or you don't put a filter on that picture, people can recognize that. And I'm a great believer that my stomach is smarter than my head. Now, we talk about our reptilian brain, the fight or flight uh, aspect. Yes. Your stomach is the thing that gives you butterflies when you're nervous or something doesn't feel right. And so when you're talking to someone or when you're looking at something, and something's going on in your stomach, and you're uncomfortable, what do you do? You walk away. So, but by keeping something raw, and keeping something transparent, not authentic, I hate that word, transparent. Impossible to misunderstand. It is as ugly as it is. And if you like that, great. If you don't, find something else. If you can keep it as blunt and as transparent as that, your stomach's settled because you know what to expect. You know what's there. And I'm a great believer in you want to try and keep things as ugly as possible. I write letters, and I put a sharpie to write the address. You know, yeah. Um, whenever I do stamps, I make a point of just slightly moving that stamp so that it's squiffed off slightly. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Just those little elements, without you realizing it, without you, without you registering it, will tell your inner brain. A human being put that stamp on because it wasn't perfect. When you go to a post office, that thing's perfect in the corner, or it's a stamp by a machine, by a computer. But when a stamp's on there and the letter's written by Sharpie, you go, oh, what's this? This is a human being that's reached out to me. There's something here. So I'm a great believer in keeping things raw and ugly, raw and ugly. One of my great things I like to do is if I see an article in a magazine I like, I will literally pull that article out as and like that. Don't trim up the edges or anything like that. Leap it all colour rip, fold it up, stick it in an envelope, put on there, Bill, I thought you were into uh, you know, fancy cars. I found this article, and post it to someone. And they get that and they open it up and it's all what they know you took the time, and they can also see the energy and passion and impulse that you took in going, oh Bill I love that. Rip.
0: Here you go. You definitely have energy and passion, Steve. It's awesome. Well, you know, I want to I want to move forward and and ask you five uh, quick answer questions. So just thirty second answers are perfect. The first one is: Who is one person who influenced you to be mindful and grounded and centered in your life?
1: Oh my God! There's so many people. Jason Gaynard's one of them. Joe Polish, Dean Jackson, Abe. I could go on forever, and we wouldn't have enough time. But I think one of the first ones that really taught me to dream was Walt Disney and Doctor Zeus.
0: Mm. Uh, how has mindfulness affected your emotions, Steve?
1: Um, they are one of the same. Um, how I think of things tell me how I feel about them.
0: Tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness practice.
1: You know, it's very, this is a great podcast. Um, People don't realize the importance of breath. You know, you'll go to a car and you'll stand there and try and work out what's the best gas to put in the machine, but you won't pay attention to you recharging and paying attention to your breath. Take the time to breathe.
0: Exactly. If you could recommend a book somehow related to mindfulness, what would that book be?
1: What, it can't be mine? <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> it it could be yours, yes. Uh, and yours does have a lot to do with mindfulness. Well, there
1: you go. Cheap-ass plug, Blue Fish in The Art of Making Things Happen by the handsome Steve Sims.
0: <laughs> yeah, I highly recommend it. It's a great <laughs> book. Uh, if you could share an app which helps with mindfulness, what would that be?
1: Do you know, I don't know the name of it, but it's one that shuts your phone off. It allows you to surf the internet. For Tim Ferriss uh, told me about it. You can actually program it that the phone will only connect to the internet for like a three-hour period. Um, You get yourself into a habit of that, but what you Uh do is you stop this, oh, I need to do this, and you start focusing on making the most value out of your time. So it's one that shuts your phone off.
0: Well, cool, because I know you use pen and paper when you want to take notes. Isn't that right?
1: It is. It is. I use pen and paper. I find that it registers into my head better, and I will take notes. I'll go to a meeting. I'll take notes on the phone or I'll voice record them, and then I'll come home and I'll write them on a piece of paper.
0: Good tip. Steve, how can we connect with you and learn more about what you do?
1: Um, Well, here's something that's free for your folks. If you go to stevedsims.com and enter in your email address, you'll actually get the Bluefish and Playbook free of charge as a PDF you can download that gives you an overview on what's going on, but also gives you some instantaneous tips in how you can basically be more productive get rid of the vampires in your life and uh, be something more in you.
0: And let's repeat that URL one more time. stevedsims.com
1: S-I-M-S. Yes. Steve D for dog Sims
0: dot com. Excellent, Steve. Thanks for that. And thanks for being on the show today. It's been a pure pleasure to talk with you and, and to hear you tell about some things that I haven't heard you talk about before on other shows. So thanks so much for being here, Steve.
1: Well, it was your questions. Thanks for pulling it out of me. I appreciate it. I had fun with this.
0: Great. All the best to you. Bye now. Bye. Thanks so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com and type the guest's name or the episode number into the search bar. You can also go mindfulnessmode.com slash Oh, and don't forget to check out the zenconference.org coming up in Atlanta, Georgia. I mentioned it at the top of the show and you can get 20% off by entering the word mindfulness. And also don't forget to download the free sleep meditation I created called Sleep Naturally Meditation. Go to mindfulnessmode.com forward sleep.